With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pampers Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Gabriela Garcia grew up a first-generation daughter of Mexican and Cuban immigrants, raised by a solo mom in a family full of women. That experience fuels her New York Times bestseller of Women and Salt, which follows the lives of mothers and daughters across five generations in multiple locales, including Cuba, Mexico, Miami, and Texas. What's most striking to me about Gabriela's writing is how she takes a machete to tropes like the long-suffering, all-sacrificing immigrant mother and instead leaves us to grapple with the often imperfect choices mothers must make and the legacies we are each handed. Gabriela, I feel like I have been spending so much time with you because I got trapped in the Las Vegas airport for 11 hours with your book as my only companion. So thank you. Well, that sounds terrible, but I'm glad the book kept you company. You dedicate your book to your grandmother. I want you to tell me a little bit about her. Yeah, so my grandmother has been a really important figure in my life. She's 102 now. She's still alive. And I grew up with a single mother, and my grandmother lived across the street from us. So she was a huge part in helping to raise me. You know, picked me up from school every day. It was just sort of the the linchpin of my family. You don't just grow up with a single mom and with a grandmother who's largely raising I me. Mean, you grow up in a family full of women. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of my interest in writing so many women characters. I grew up in a very matriarchal family. I grew up with a a single mother, and she had all sisters. My grandmother had all sisters. I have all sisters. And so many of these women were involved in helping to raise me and shape me. And I, I never felt a, a lack in that. I never felt like I was missing anything in that. Growing up, who were you reading that most closely approximated your life? 
I remember like encountering like Christina Garcia's work for the first time. That was like one of the first Cuban-American authors that I had ever read. She's a Cuban-American author who puts a masturbation scene in her book. And that's where I was like, I didn't know we were allowed to talk about this. (laughs) You're going to get in so much trouble, Christina. (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of that. But then I think I also, you know, growing up just reading books really focused on women characters. Like I read a lot of Toni Morrison. I was obsessed with The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Anything that sort of featured like really complex relationships between women was something I was always very drawn to. It's just interesting to me because that is not a dominant culture thread of the place and the culture you grew up in. You're right. I don't know. It seems to me it would not be commonplace. I grew up in Miami, but I also just grew up feeling very different from a lot of the people around me too, you know, like, for example, I, the the sort of tensions that I write about in my book with one of the characters who's like traveling to Cuba, but her parents don't want her to travel there. Like I never had that growing up. I grew up traveling to Cuba a lot and being in contact with people in Cuba a lot and realizing how very different, what, what different populations those were, Cubans and Cuban and Cuban Americans in Miami. And I came from like a very politically involved family that often felt sort of out of sorts with the more conservative community of Cubans in Miami. And yeah, I guess I'd never thought of like the sort of rebelliousness or darkness in my writing that's sort of at odds with the the larger sort of vibe of Miami. But I think that's pretty reflective also of just how I felt growing up in Miami in general. Did you know early that you wanted to be a writer? I didn't consider it as like a possible viable like you know career option but I certainly have been a writer pretty much all of my life since before I could even write I was dictating stories to my mom (laughs) (laughs) yeah when I was growing up I would make up magazines and I wrote like a bunch of like fake books and things when I was growing up like I was very very creative very interested in in writing I was always reading so it's been something that has existed in me all of my life but it took me a while to sort of land on it as a real possibility. I mean, how does it become a real possibility? I think I worked a lot of writing adjacent jobs. I was an organizer. I worked in media. You know, a lot of my work involved writing in different capacities. But I think I realized at one point, after like a decade of of various jobs, that all I really wanted to do was just make things up and write stories. And so I applied to some MFA creative writing programs. And I thought, you know, if I get in, I'll like take this more seriously as a real option. And if not, I'll just, you know, keep doing this for myself. I'm sort of glad that it took me a while to get there as opposed to like, you know, just graduated from college and decided to write a book. I think, I think I appreciated having more life experience and having a lot of experiences outside of academia before I sort of, you know, sat down to write a book. I always think of this Toni Morrison quote that's popular where she says that if there's a book that you want to read and it doesn't exist, then you must write it. And I think that's how I sort of landed on on my first book being so centered around Miami and, and all of those various experiences portrayed. But a piece of Miami that has not necessarily existed in popular culture, right? I mean, I think that is like you're offering a more complex and nuanced vision of the city of Cubans and Cuban Americans. And a lot of that is centered in the organizing that you did in immigration detention centers. So first, I wonder what it is 
that drew you to that work in the first place? I grew up very immersed in the sort of inequalities that exist within the immigration system. I experienced that within my own family, I experienced that with friends. It was just always very, very present for me. I started, you know, doing sort of local organizing work in Miami, and then that sort of branched out into larger work around detention centers, and some of it was focused on the border and in Texas. But yeah, all of that was happening at a time, you know, this was like before Trump. It was at a time when a lot of a lot of the stuff was still happening, you know, like family separation and children held in detention centers. But it was just so difficult to get any kind of like national attention on on all of this stuff. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Well, I remember, I'm sure you remember too, when Gabby Pacheco and three other dreamers like walked from Miami to Washington DC and it really felt like this pivotal moment where all of a sudden people were forced to understand the stakes. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why my book is so focused on women and ties in you know, this woman in, in detention and her story and her daughter's story is that I think in doing this work, in talking to women in detention, in visiting with families in detention, like I realized how intertwined all of these issues are. People fleeing domestic violence and sexual assaults and the kind of like re-traumatizing that happened within the system. And, you know, just realizing that like, all of these things intersect constantly. I think that's something that that really struck me in, in doing that work. 
the frustrating part too, I think was just like what stories are sort of left out of narratives, you know, what's deemed the sort of acceptable narrative about who gets to stay here and, you know, migrants having to sort of be these like exceptional people in order to deserve basic dignity. And I think I wanted to think about it with more complexity than that. Talk me through the process of writing of women in assault because it was not necessarily a linear process. Not like you sat down and you were like, I am going to write a book about multiple, you know, like it, it sort of revealed itself to you. What did that process look like? Parts of it started at different points and I started weaving it together. I think when I started, I was like unsure of what the overall shape of it was going to be. You know, there are sort of writers who plan things out very thoroughly. I think I had like a rough idea, but overall, just like you said, wanted it to just kind of unfold organically. In the beginning, I was like, maybe these are like linked short stories. And then I started adding these pieces that didn't really work as standalone stories. And then I just kept going and let it be what it was. And I was like, you know, somebody else will tell me what this is. And then once I had the finished project, they were like, okay, this is, this is a novel. Who's they? Who's telling you this is a novel? I had different people read it at different points. You know, I had like a thesis committee and then, you know, later on an agent and editors. But yeah, I think when I started, I had like very little sense of what it really was. I just gave myself permission to just like write what I wanted to write. Gabriela, I have to tell you, I'm super into your entire vibe around writing, which is like, you know, very often I will interview writers who are like, at 9 a.m. every day, I do my gratitude journal. And then at 10 a.m., I clear my desk and you have more of a like, well, we'll see where the day takes me energy about this. And I just wonder if you can like, what does that look like? And then when are you actually getting it done? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm really envious of the writers Me who too. have those kinds of very structured processes. I think I used to feel like I needed to do that. I would just listen really carefully to like what every writer said was their routine and felt like I had to sort of copy that to be successful. And then I think I, I realized that like it doesn't work for me that way when I like sort of force myself to write every day, I very often don't like what I produce. I tend to be, like you said, a lot more unstructured. I'll sort of go through periods where I'm just thinking about the writing and then others where it's just like flowing out of me and I'll write for days and then maybe not write for like a couple of weeks. And it's a lot messier and free flowing. But I've also realized that that's what works for me individually. Like I also wouldn't you know, necessarily tell someone that this is the correct way to write. Whatever works for each person and produces their best work is the right path. I'm curious as someone who, you know, who did organizing and direct service work, at some point there's a decision you make, right? Where you're like, I am going to step away from this work that I believe is very important in order to take the ethos I had developed in this work and bring it to work that will have impact, but that impact won't be as direct, right? It's harder to measure how many people you were reaching with this message and how many hearts and minds were changed. And I wonder if you struggled with that, um, if you've struggled with it at all in the process of moving away from it, if there's ever been sort of a pull back to that work, just how you, how you made that break. I mean, I think they're all parts of my life that feed into each other. And I've still been involved in different organizing and movement work, you know, even as I was writing this book and in the past year. But I think, 
like even when I was doing organizing work, I was often talking to other people and then writing, whether it was it was about trying to get media attention or writing advocacy emails or whatever, like so much of what I was doing was sort of storytelling, felt like sort of witnessing and recording and all these parts just don't feel incredibly different, although they are very different. Um, but I think I'm also pretty, I, or I try to be pretty humble about the creative work that I'm doing and what its purpose is in the world. But all of these things are going to bleed into each other. You know, all of my own political positions, my own sort of convictions. I mean, this comes out in my writing, even when I'm not trying to write something directly polemical or, or whatever. It's funny to me, I mean, I've written one book, it is a nonfiction book, but a thing that happens as you're going through the process of selling a book for someone who's never done it is that very often publishers will ask you questions about how you see your book positioned in the markets. This is also a business, and there is a need and a desire on the part of publishing houses to package not just the book, but to package you. And I wonder what that process has been like for you. I mean, did they want you to be a Cuban author, a Mexican author, a Latina author, a millennial author? Like what was sort of the thing that was superimposed onto you and onto Of Women and Salt? Yeah, I mean, I think that's hard because there's parts that feel like they're in my control and parts that feel like they're out of my control, you know? And the only thing that really feels in my control is the writing itself, what other people project onto it or onto me or how they sort of synthesize who I am. Like, I sort of feel like I don't have any control over that, really. I think that's probably the the hardest part of being an author as opposed to, you know, capital A author as opposed to a writer. I'm someone who doesn't really, like, enjoy being in the spotlight. I'm not, like, incredibly active on social media. And, yeah, I'm a little bit more selective about what media I do. I think part of why I turn to fiction is because I'm a lot more comfortable sort of making stories up than talking about myself. It comes with the package of doing this. But the publisher that I worked with, the editor that I worked with, they they never sort of superimposed this idea of who I had to be as a public-facing individual and were like very open to having like a very collaborative relationship with me. But that doesn't mean that, you know, like I can't, I really can't control how other people see me or want to see me or whatever. It sort of just comes with the package. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. There's the matriarchal piece of this. There is the work that you did organizing in immigrant communities those pieces clearly woven throughout of Women and Salt. Where else in of Women and Salt can we see pieces of your life? It's not like autobiographical, and my family is pretty different from the family that I write about. Um, but I think there's pieces of me in everything, and probably in every character, or pieces of people I've known in my life. Or you know, I loved writing about Miami in the '90s or early 2000s. You know, and drawing from a lot of my experiences at that time. 
there's a piece that takes place in Mexico in the hometown of my father, where I travel to pretty regularly. I write about neighborhoods in Cuba that I've spent a lot of time in. I write about Buena Vista, which is the neighborhood where my uncle lives and where I used to travel back and forth from pretty frequently. So there's like pieces of me, pieces of people I know, places. It's all woven in there, even if it's not exactly me. Final question, which is, as you said, there is that great Toni Morrison quote that is oft shared as an impetus for writing a book. And I think there are a lot of people who are going to listen who who feel the same way, that there is a book they have wanted to read that does not yet exist in the world. What is your best counsel to someone who feels like she has that inside of her? Just to, to write it, you know? I think there's a million forces telling you to not to not do something. And I think it takes a lot of fortitude to just like get to the point of of writing a book and putting it out in the world. It feels like so much is out of your control, but that's the one thing that that is in your control. So I think if if it feels like it did for me, which was just like, this is the only thing I want to do. This is just like something beyond me that I just like need to do. Then you should, you should do it. Gabriela, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. This is really wonderful. Thanks for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our producer. Florence Burrow Adams mixed this episode. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram or tweet us at latinatolatina. Check out our merchandise at latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening right now. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.